um, that that is, is very pervasive. And, and a lot of times you will hear, or sometimes, I shouldn't say a lot, sometimes you will hear uh, people struggling with their mental illness, saying there's a side of them that just wants wants to release it and go with it. And then I have this other side that makes me feel guilty and doesn't want me. They, it sees that I'm destroying my family, for example. And then the idea is, is which one is winning at that time? This dualistic idea of evil versus good and, and both are trying to, to, to control us. Why is this important to know as a facilitator? Mainly because that is a mainstream um, belief system. Uh, the things that I want you to keep in mind are some of the things that Freud's have talked about. The, the, the drive of desires, um, the unconscious uh, mind that sometimes makes us feel like we have no control, that there's, there's two things that are controlling us from time to time. Uh, and it's important to keep in mind as the facilitator that these are processes. And I'm gonna put this out there. These are natural processes that trauma, mental illness and addiction, I'm not gonna use the, 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 the nomenclature, but just really mess people up. You could put the F word in there if you'd like. All right. So as we talk the unconscious in this graph, this is kind of the his 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 logic and thinking when he came up with sex and death is it actually comes from the Greek word eros and thantos. Um, I know uh, I think there's a thantos in one of the Avengers movies. I don't. But thantos is the death instinct or the destructive instinct, where eros is the life instinct. And then he narrowed those down to the sex and death drive or aggression drive. So just a little grounding on where that came from. Psychic energy, uh, when we talk about someone's libido today, we talk about how sexual they are, um, how, uh, you know, how many times they, they're promiscuous or whatever you want to call it. Um, libido in Freudian terms is just a term for your psychic energy. It's what the it is giving off. It's what energizes your unconscious system and your conscious system. And the other thing is, and, and this is important again, when we come to facilitation skills, is that these are illogical components um, because they're inter entertained two opposing forces. And that's not logical in a sense. An argument shouldn't be I'm a good person because I'm not a bad person. That's an unlogical statement. So the unconscious uh, is very illogical. It's only thinking about wanting to fulfill those desires. Um, it's primitive, chaotic, and inaccessible. And your job as a facilitator in this model is to understand and, and I think this is the important part of this. If you think about this as a chaotic environment, which someone is negotiating because of trauma, because of uh, addiction, because of mental illness, it does feel like they live in a very chaotic world. It does feel um, trapped in a lot of ways. And so our job as a facilitator is to untangle that to untangle that chaotic world and using the group process, provide a sense of uh, control over the individual, all right? And you'll especially hear that in things like uh, people who've been, who survived sexual abuse, people who survived domestic violence in a lot of group settings, you talk a lot about self-control, taking control back from what was taken from you. Uh, because in, in, in a lot of these situations, when they come, their world is chaos. And so our job is to help them get control over that chaos and so that they can have some stability in their life. Okay. And then the ego, of course, is the reality principle. There, this is the one that makes sure it tries to mediate our pleasure principles from our reality. 
Um, it's kind of that decision-making executive branch. And then of course I talked about the super ego, which is that uh, uh, looking for uh, this idealistic principle. The thing that I want you to keep in mind, again, going back to facilitation skills and being an effective facilitator is everybody has this idea of what an idealistic person is. And many who have spiraled to the point that, they, that they're in the group setting um, tend to have offended in a way a lot of those idealistic principles. Now, I need to be very careful with this statement because treatment is only effective when the client accepts their experience and is ready for change, okay? And so when we talk about this idea of idealistic principle versus realistic principle, super ego versus ego, don't think about it as the person's willingness to change become, become an idealistic person. Think of it in the sense of what is it that that person thinks they should be versus how they think of themselves in the real world. And, and we talked a little bit about this when we went uh, with the humanistic theory, right? The difference between the ideal self and the real self and, and the difference between those. Well, we can put it in this psychoanalytical terms um, is that, that we have a super ego that says, this is who you need to be. And you have an ego that says, wait, this isn't the world. This, is, this isn't how we should navigate this. We've got to survive, blah, blah, blah. And that, if it's compounded by trauma, if it's compounded by addiction, creates uh, a lot of self-defeating behaviors. Um, you'll see this a lot in people who, for example, uh, uh, cut uh, um, or self-harm themselves. This can create su suicidal ideology. So uh, when, a, when a, a, a person who is suffering from some type of ailment then loses their job, and they lose that part of their ideal self that can begin to spiral that person down. All right, and this is just how that model works. Um, I don't wanna to get too much into it. I think I'm spending way too much time. Um, I did wanna mention he did, he was the first one to uh, uh, develop the term of narcissism, which is a, a, a defined by him as extreme self-love for oneself to the point where the person starts to neglect, harm, hurt others in order to protect their, their self. In this sense, uh, narcissism develops according to, to psychoanalysis from, um, from not being able to actually have healthy human connections that result in a healthy, intimate, and sexual relationship. Usually this is learned, again, from Freud's theory, early in childhood, where the child is looking at mom and dad and saying, this is how I should act. Um, and then they create a defense mechanism of narcissism to try and protect themselves. Now I wanna rewind, That's, this is psychoanalytic theory. This is just a theory or an idea of narcissism, but this does not excuse the narcissistic's behavior. But again, as a facilitator, that's one area if you have narcissists in your, in your, in your treatment groups, that is one thing you're gonna to have to consider is one, the behaviors they're going to admit to your group, but two, trying to help that person figure out where those narcissistic tendencies come from, okay? And then we, went, uh, we already went through defense mechanisms. I'm not gonna spend much time on that. Um, uh, let's see. All right, and then the next theory, and again, I'm gonna try and bring this back to actual facilitation skills, but I'm gonna stop right here. Does anybody have any questions? This is weird not being in a classroom where I could see if anyone's. Any questions at this point? Okay. No questions for me. 
All right, thank you all. So let's go to whoops, humanistic theory and see how it applies to facilitation skills. Okay, so remember that uh, humanistics were actually one of our first human motivation theories in, in, in the clinical area. They actually believe people have the capacity for growth. If we look at psychoanalysis, if we look at behaviorism, our behaviors are always predetermined when one by some unconscious desire and the other by some learned behavioral pattern over time. And we can see how both of those may apply, right? Um, but the humanistic approach brings in this idea that people don't want to suffer. People don't want to just exist. They want to, what, what, what have I heard the People want to thrive instead of survive. I think that's a popular meme I see on Facebook now. And that's really kind of this humanistic idea that we all have this destination. We all have this place. But when life interrupts, trauma, addiction, mental illness interrupts, it makes it harder to see that direction. Okay. So in the models we're talking about, right, when, when it comes to psychoanalysis, well, psychoanalysis has a little bit of this, cognitive behavioral therapy, all these, we're trying to help the person get their behaviors and emotions under control and get them um, so that they can manage them better. Then we lead into the humanistic approach where the next step is, is now that we have these behaviors being managed, what do you want to do? Where do you want to go, right? Now, this is, this is done throughout the group process. You start this on day one. Where are you today? And where would you like to see yourself tomorrow? That's a very common question. And it happens throughout the, 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 the group. And what you as a facilitator should hope to see is as the individual becomes better, that those qualities, those, those things that that person wants to focus on becomes more and more defined. And then sometimes they change them all together. And so this is really the important parts of the humanistic and with facilitation skills, it's about seeing how the person changes over the group process. If they just cannot see something better for themselves, as a facilitator with that individual, we want to rewind the clock of the group and go back to more basic ideas that we talked about in the group and try to help that individual build back up some type of hope, some type of desire, some type of want in the world. Okay. Now, uh, we talked about Maslow's model. I won't spend too much time on here, but this is, uh, again, a facilitation skill. Okay, I talked about outbursts earlier, right, about how sometimes individuals are so overwhelmed in their, their, their mind that they respond uh, viscerally, they, they respond with anger, and when you ask them why, they often say, I don't know why I just responded that way, it just pissed me off, okay, well, this is where a good place to start with that individual is kind of say, well, tell me about the last time since um, you were here, are you are you feeling safe? Uh, food, water, okay? Uh, how's your relationships with your friends? How are you feeling about yourself? Okay, because the one thing that I will agree with Maslow's model is if we do not have these four basic things in place, we can't really focus on the task at hand, especially in a group setting. So when you have clients who just have those outbursts, this is kind of a good place to start is go back to Maslow's triangle and say, okay, most of the time when I've done this in a group, we've ended up having a discussion. Usually it usually has to do something with family, an intimate partner. Uh, sometimes it really dealt with work um, and not concerns about having enough food and warmth. And so those were the common things I saw. Um, I had a, a, a colleague of mine who worked with inner city uh, juveniles, and he said most of the things that uh, kids outburst with within his group was because they just didn't feel safe. 
uh, they, they saw someone get shot that day or stabbed that day or robbed that day. And they just didn't feel like they felt like they needed to protect themselves. And of course, in that context, one way to protect yourself is to act out aggressively, even though you don't know why you're acting out. Okay. All right. We've already talked about this with Freud's theory, the ideal self versus the real self. And one thing just to keep in mind as you're listening to clients. Sorry. Sorry? I have a question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you were talking about how outbursts in like the group setting type of deal. Uh huh. So how do we continue after an outburst? Do we just, well, we get into that later as the class goes or? We will get into that later, Lorenzo, but one of the most, I mean, just as a basic process, but we need to talk about it much deeper is usually what you do is um, if you don't have a co-facilitator, usually you go get someone from the office or somewhere around there uh, to come in and sit with the group. And then you take that individual aside and, and you say, okay, we're going to take a break. Be, but before you bring that person back into the room, you go back to the rest of the group and you do a safety check. You ask how, how people are feeling about what just happened, those things going on. And you say, I've talked to so-and-so and this is, and, and you, you know, they don't want to disclose the details of what happened or how this occurred, uh, but uh, they are very apologetic and would like to return to the group is a group going to give uh, the, the individual permission to come back for the rest of the session? Because you have to deal with two things with these, this situation. Is one, you have to understand what's going on with all the other group members who have all been triggered, probably, or most have been triggered. And then you've got to assist that individual. And so um, I know what I've done is I say it right up front um, is if uh, we have to remove you for the group for some reason, uh, the facilitator will ask the group permission if you could return. If you can't, you'll return the next week or we'll, we'll make a scheduled appointment. That's kind of the basics idea of it, Lorenzo, but we will talk much, much more about it um, in more detailed. Uh, but is that, uh, uh, is that okay for right now? Yeah, thank you. And Leanne, yeah, so uh, as far as group rules and stuff, we'll actually go over it when we, we set up our generic group. I'll provide some generic group uh, rules uh, that, that um, and, you know, with my groups, I, I always made this a very formal process. I, I, I had them sign that they agree to them and, and I put them in their folder. Some facilitators don't because they want to have more informal development of trust. They want to informally let the, 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 the group be more organic, which I agree with. But um, I also, you know, I guess in my experience, maybe because of the populations I've worked with, um, I, I always feel like, you know, a group needs boundaries to, to um, exist within. Um, and I haven't had very much luck with just that open-ended, here's the rules, you know, follow them. So, but we'll get more into that as we go, but that's a really good question as well as when, when do you establish rules at what level? And uh, I'm going to say at what level it depends on what you're trying to set for your group. Um, because I know with my groups, we always needed to have really strong boundaries uh, to feel safe in that environment. So, okay. So we talked about the ideal self and the real self. And as a facilitator, we should always be monitoring this. Are they having a realistic view of themselves? Um, and usually you can tell this when you do a check-in at the beginning of the group and ask them about their week. And if they're constantly saying, I didn't achieve this, I didn't achieve that, I, I failed at this, that usually means that they have an unrealistic view of who they think they should be, excuse me. And in those cases, that again is where you want to use group members and say, why do you think so-and-so is feeling this way? And then help facilitate that conversation to kind of have the group help the person come to that conclusion that, well, maybe I just had unrealistic expectations for um, last week. 
And I will tell you, this usually comes up in the beginning of a group because uh, uh, even though it's really explained, um, a lot of individuals feel like it's just like going to the doctor's office one or two visits and I should be okay. Um, I wish it was that way, but because we, we have in, in, in Western culture, we have this medical model that it, all I got to do is go see the professional, they'll do a few things, and then all of a sudden I'll be okay. Um, and that's one of the fallacies of, of, of the Western culture that we have in that these things that we're talking about, addiction, abuse, mental illness, trauma, these are not things you overcome in just one or two sessions with something, somebody. You know, the, the, the psychoeducational groups, uh, they can run under 16, section, 16 sessions because usually what you're trying to do is just process information. But I know that uh, treatment groups, I mean, 16 sessions is usually the minimum. And then you usually have follow-up groups. Some of them, for example, in addiction, um, um, uh, if you look at uh, uh, things like Al-Anon and stuff, those are, they promote those as a lifelong process, right? And so these are things to keep in mind. This isn't just a one and done type of deal. Uh, we have all those. All right. So a couple of the theories that we didn't really talk about too much was behavioral and uh, cognitive theories. And, and again, in most treatment modalities, we're going to combine these two. But let's talk about the behavioral approach. What behaviorists believed, again, going back to the pure theory, is that people react to their environment. And dependent on whether they have a positive or negative experience will determine whether they will interact or continue with those behaviors in the future. Okay. So let's talk about um, let's talk about addiction and uh, domestic violence. Okay. And so we have individuals that are two separate groups. In addiction, what we start to do with the behavioral approach to addiction therapy is we try to find their triggers in their environment that create cravings that then uh, start the addictive behavior. So uh, we have a triggering event. Uh, we have some time between this, we, we start having cravings and then our behaviors move towards satisfying that triggering event. And if it's rewarding, we will do it again. If it's punishing, we'll avoid it, okay? This is the most basic of this model. Um, so the difficult part about doing behavioral therapy in a group is having individuals have a real concept of what their triggers are. Uh, because sometimes we feel like we internalize triggers and we create those triggers and that we're still making the choice to go drink or, or to do any other type of drugs. And we think that that is a choice. But I want you to go back to the behaviorist idea of, of, of determination of behavior, which states that the reason why we commit a behavior is because of learned patterns of behavior from our past. So we may think that this trigger, ah, oh, here I go again, I'm thinking stupid, da, 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 da. Yet most of the time, even though we say, oh, I should have control over this, no, I don't want this, we still go and commit that behavior, right? Uh, when we talk about domestic violence, um, we talk about, uh, you know, the average number of times it takes someone to leave an abuser, I believe, is between seven to nine. Um, and, and we often wonder, well, why does that individual return? I always don't like the behavioral explanation, but this is kind of what the behaviorist would say. Is there was a triggering event, something that reminded them of their intimate partner during good times. 
during well times. And these triggers can be as simple as a smell um, or as blunt as running into your uh, intimate violent partner in a parking lot, okay? It can be very innocuous. It could be the way someone laughed. And that triggering event then will start to spiral a series of behaviors that results the individual into returning to that uh, domestic abuser, okay? So what do we do in both of these cases? This, these learned patterns of behaviors that then lead to one triggering event that then creates a spiraling behavior. Well, we'll get into this in a lot more detail, but from the basics of the behavioral approach, we have to attack, uh, that's a bad word. Uh, we have to uh, look at all of the behavioral events. So we need to look at the triggering event, the behavior it created, the reward and punishment, and then future behaviors. So in this, we can start to build skills. So when someone has a triggering event, we can uh, come up with other things that that individual can do besides behaviors they've committed in the past. We could look at the behavior itself and try to modify that, those addictive behaviors, those addictive drives. And then we could start to look at uh, reward and punishment for future behaviors. In this case, uh, if we're talking about certain addictions, there's, there's certain medications that a person can take that will actually nauseate them. Um, and so that can then punish the behavior instead of reward the behavior. And then looking at future behaviors, this is where we start to talk about things like relapse prevention uh, and those types of things, okay? Going back to the domestic violence, well, let me, let me first finish with this, this approach. This basically is, you know, if we have an example of someone driving home and they see a bar, a bar sign, right? Um, and they start to trigger to that and they start having cravings. And maybe the first week they continue just to pass by that bar, but eventually they pull into the drive, driveway or <laughs> lot, they go in and they, they, they relapse, okay? Well, what are some things that can be done uh, with this individual? Well, we could look at the behavior, right? And we can say, all right, when you're driving down fifth, which is where this uh, bar is located, is there an alternate route you can take, okay? We can look at the triggering event and we can do some behavioral uh, exposure therapy. Um, we could look at the reward and punishment. Was that really rewarding or, or, or did you end up you know, missing work the next day or whatever it may be? And then we can say, now it's time to forgive ourselves and, and look at what to do when we relapse. How do we deal with relapse? Okay, if we take the domestic violence uh, example, and, and, and the one that I have is uh, when survivors have finally gotten out of the relationship, um, uh, but they're fearful that they're just going to get another one. They're just because maybe sometimes they have a history of getting in and out of domestic violence relationships. While we look at triggering events, right? What's triggering you to want to get in a relationship similar to your past partner? And then we can look at behaviors. Like, for example, maybe when you're triggering, you should walk away. But when someone comes up to you that doesn't trigger you, maybe that's when you should consider dating them because you're triggering to that relationship that was not healthy to you in the past. So we got to change the behavior and the direction that you're going with it, okay? Now, I do want to mention, I know that uh, when, when I talk about domestic violence, I talk about uh, uh, survivor behavior and stuff like that. And sometimes it can sound like, well, the responsibility for the uh, survivor to get better is the survivors. And I don't want anyone to go away with that message. 
But what we want is, is to help survivors, uh, one, not get back into uh, another bad relationship, another violent relationship that then may end up in death. Um, but two, we want to get them from surviving to thriving, giving them hope instead of always having that fear of behind their back, always feeling like they can't trust anyone. They can't uh, have a, what, what, what I've heard a lot of times uh, from survivors I work, I don't have a normal life. I would love a normal life, but I can't because every time I try, I end up getting hurt. Now you hear the self-blame in that, right? But our job is then to take that information and help the, 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 the client mold it into going from th thriving to surviving. And again, you're going to see where the limitations of pure, pure theory is. How are you going to do that with the behavioral approach, right? Okay. The second type of, of things, and you can see in here, we've already put a triangle of behavior. So it's already more cognitive behavioral. But what uh, the, the cognitive people uh, believed is that um, it's our thoughts that control our behaviors. And if we can control our thoughts, we can control our behaviors. So in their model, we have a triggering event that then creates a thought that then creates behavior. And then we appraise that to see if we got the result we wanted. Okay, that's the most basic idea behind this model. Um, and so how does this work? Um, we'll, we'll, we'll go back to addiction, right, is in a lot of uh, really intensive treatments that are, are um, where, where groups meet uh, more often uh, than every couple weeks or so, is that this is where you implement things like homework, where in one model that I, that, that, that I used, or we, we use, I should say, is whenever a person triggered, they always kept a notebook uh, by them. And whenever they got a trigger to use, they would write down first what their emotions and feelings are. And then second, and, and it has to happen quickly, they have to be honest about what thoughts went through their mind. What am I thinking right now? Okay. And then what behavior does that do? Now, where does this come into play? You remember when I talked about uh, defense mechanisms? And then uh, we're going to update it a little bit and call them thinking errors. What you're going to do as a facilitator is help this individual establish a pattern of thinking that then results in a given behavior. And then you're going to point out, or I shouldn't say you point out, you help the, the, the client or the group understand the errors in thinking that, 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 that then resulted in, let's say, the relapse for this example, okay? And so that's the cognitive model. And, and the thing that I want to emphasize really quick about behavior and cognition is that they both matter and they're both very important. Behavior is how we exist. It's how we survive. Thinking is how we evaluate our world. And these are very, in a lot of ways, the cognitive idea brings out the consciousness of the individual. Uh, when we talked about Freud, when we talked about behaviorism, and even in humanistic uh, theory, they say you need to unlock the client's potential. Well, cognition is that theory that says you're exactly right. A client's thought processes are very, very important, and they need to be uh, understood within the treatment uh, setting, within the group setting, about how those behaviors and how we evaluate those behaviors are driving our own behavior, okay? All right, is there any questions about uh, any of those three models at this point? Because this is really a kind of our summary of these.
Oh, good. I'm glad, Myra. All right. <clears throat> what I wanted to do just real quickly is talk about uh, some popular cultural beliefs around things like mental illness, about uh, addiction, about trauma, and the like. Okay. And the first one, and probably most popular, is uh, the medical model, which just basically states that when you have an, a, I'm just going to generically say this, a problem, then you go to a professional and their job is to remove that problem and then automatically you're okay. All right. That's the basic definition of our medical model. And and then we talk about disease versus mental illness. And then we, and then we get into addiction where addiction, the, the, the popular notion that addiction is a disease and therefore it needs to be treated medically. Um, or, uh, but uh, here's the things that we need to consider when we think that way. Is, is addiction a unique disorder to the human existence? Uh, because I would, I would argue that uh, people who are in, continue to be in bad relationships, uh, go through the same processes as addiction, those types of things. Should we not think of addiction or any of our things that we think in a non-medical model way? Absolutely not, because then that excuses the behavior. Because with everything we talk about, there is the, the human being that is existing biologically and the human being that is existing in their conscious reality world. And those two things are one in the same. And so when we're doing something that creates a maladaptive behavior, it is creating change within us physically. Okay. Um, you know, the, uh, in the addiction field, we talk about uh, someone who started drinking heavily at the age of 12, and we find that uh, they cognitively and socially stop developing at that age if the drinking persists and, and uh, is long, long going. We find out even when we can get them, when they become uh, uh, sober and are in treatment, they still have those cognitive difficulties. And so when we're talking about the medical model and disease, we need to get away from the bad mindset. Well, there's two bad mindsets. That one, mental illness, trauma, violence, um, addiction are not a disease. It's not a medical problem because all of them are, okay? And we just can't expect someone just to get better. The other bad thought we need to get is on the other side of the coin with the medical model in that when we're dealing with diseases that we deal with, it's gonna be 95% of the client and 5% the provider assisting this individual into overcoming whatever disease it is that that we don't just have a magical pill and there you go go home take it for five days and you'll be fine that's not the way our field works so we got to get away from those two bad thought processes um religion faith spirituality are always a source for some people for healing um uh and 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 it has large cultural implications, okay? Because um, someone who's non-religious may feel like that they're inferior to others because of the predominance of Christianity, for example, in the United States. Um, and some people may not feel like they're living up to their spiritual or religious obligations. What I would say about the group setting and as, as far as facilitation skills, is I always try to, I hate to say this, I don't, I, I should come up with a different word, try to profit off of someone's spiritual beliefs, because they can be very powerful healing uh, materials that they can use to help them heal. 
In the group setting, however, where you need to be careful is when one group member starts to uh, force their spiritual or religious beliefs on other group members. Um, because what that's trying to create, well, one, it's going to create conflict. Two, it's, it creates this inequality within your group members. And so you'll get a, one group member who may not even show up next time. Uh, you'll, and you don't want to create that dynamic. So when you're, when you're thinking about religion, faith, and spirituality in a, and we should say this, in a diverse group setting, we need to use it to assist the person, but make sure it's not used in a, in a derogatory way with others. Now, there are um, groups that are completely spiritually based um, and that are very beneficial to what we call unicultural um, unicultural um, beliefs that are group settings. We can think of, uh, for example, in, in Native Americans, we have the talking circles. We have uh, in some, some areas sweat lodges um, and the like. I do want to address a question. Uh, uh, is, is one of you sent me a private uh, message, so I won't call you out on it, is I'm not quite sure what you mean by profit off of one's religion. Let me try and be more clear about that, Tina, because it's not that I want to profit. What I want is a therapeutic process to profit off of it. So for example, um, uh, when I worked with uh, uh, survivors of domestic violence, is if I had someone that was very, very Christian, for example, um, I, as the therapist, would use examples from Christianity, uh, stories of, of Jesus's teaching, for example, to uh, help that client uh, have a better understanding of what they're going through. Um, I remember one time um, I had a, for the, yeah, I, I was raised in a very rural mono place. And um, one time I, I, I had a Muslim client and she was very, very much into her faith. And I knew that she could use that to, to help her uh, uh, heal from, from what she's gone through. So in that instance, I actually went home and over the next couple of weeks, I, I read the Quran to give me a better understanding as a therapist, how we can use that religion to benefit the, the client and their healing. So I hope that, uh, that, that, that clarified what I meant by profit. Okay, so we have a few minutes left. Uh, I'm gonna stop really quick and ask, is there any questions? No questions. Okay. All right. So what I want to do is I'm going to go over what we're going to go over over the next week or so. Um, we're going to go over what's called the general model of helping, which has three phases. Uh, but all the phases, again, are intertwined. Uh, we start with exploration, where we explore the, and I'm going to put this in very general terms for now, but we'll get very specific uh, starting on Monday. The exploration phase is, uh, if, if you want to put it in clinical terms, is the assessment stage of the therapeutic process. If we're thinking about it from a Western medical model, this is where you're trying to come up with a diagnosis. Um, so you explore uh, the individual's thoughts, behaviors, and emotions. Uh, you go back to that uh, Maslow's model and go through each of those areas and you start to help the client and yourself build uh, a story, a story of what's going on. Then from that story as a facilitator using different skills, you go into what's called the insight stage. Uh, it, it, again, if we go back to pure cognitive behavior, this is where you would start going into say, saying, so I see these patterns of thoughts that you have that lead you to drinking. What do you think about that? And you have them get, start to develop an insight about how actually in that 
context. Their thoughts are influencing their behavior. And then the action stage is when you put uh, some tools in place in order for that, 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 that client to start to recover, okay? This is a general model. We, we're always bouncing back and forth between each of these, but this I just wanna kind of put the model out there for now so that uh, everyone knows where we're heading, okay? Um, I mentioned a, a week or so ago about what we call center focus uh, theory, which is uh, uh, Matt uh, Rogers and humanistic. And this is where we start the uh, relationship building, is we want to come to an acceptance of the individual, and we want to develop trust, and we want to explore what is your, you know, not using these terms, but what is the, the ultimate person to you, a self-actualized person? How do you feel about yourself? And is that meeting your expectations and those types of things? And you start to build a relationship. Okay, I'm gonna get into this uh, because this will take a while. But where we're going to head is then start building our skills, right? So we're gonna start with attending. Um, and we can, we're, we'll talk about physical orientation and everything else. But attending, really, I mean, uh, I really like this acronym, comes to encourages. Again, you've got to take someone's cultural uh, perspectives into play. So these are general um, ideas because, for example, eye contact should be negotiated based on, you know, the comfort level between the, uh, the, the, the group members and the facilitator, okay? Okay. Um, uh, and we'll get into how do you determine that uh, grammatical styles, don't use any fancy words, space appropriately. So we're going to talk about this attending and how should a group uh, room be set up based on this idea of the, the facilitator and each group members should have a visual line to each of the other group members. So we'll talk about how we create the space. We're going to talk about listening. Um, as I said a, a couple weeks ago, this tends to be the one skill that uh, makes it so a lot of uh, counselors do not graduate because they never actually um, master it and they end up going into some other type of helping field. Um, but really, what makes listening difficult is one, we always have our own personal bias perceptions and stereotypes that are going to drive our interpretation of what someone is saying. So we have that issue. So we got to work on that. We got to understand ourselves. What are our stereotypes? What are our biases? What are our perceptions when someone says, um, uh, um, yes, when I was high last night, um, uh, she claims that I raped her, but I know it was casual sex, okay? And we got to look at that from our own perspective, our own biases, our own perceptions, our own stereotypes, to make sure that that does not interfere with what our goal should be, which is to lead that person to a better life, to where they're not using, to where they're not offending when they're not doing that. But if we base everything on our own human biases, we're probably going to just make the problem worse. The other aspect of listening that is a very difficult skill to master is listening before you start to respond. Most people, most people, in fact, I would say 99% of people do not finish hearing some, but somebody say something before they already have developed their response. And so we're going to talk about some uh, practices that you can do with your, you know, intimate partner, with friends, family members that you can start to practice. How do I listen without developing a response while that person is still talking? Okay. And so we'll talk about that because that's those two things, understanding your own biases, but then also stopping developing a response before the person even starts to re, uh, stops talking, those tend to be the two skills that just are very difficult to master for a lot of individuals.
Okay, so just as a saying, we'll learn uh, unbiased listening, uh, effective reflection of thoughts and emotions for the facilitator. Um, and this is another skill that I see. Uh, uh, if we look at a master's therapist, when they do a reflections of thoughts and emotions uh, versus a novice one, when, when um, a, a novice therapist tries to express reflections on thought of emotions, they usually go, so you, Mr. Johnson, I believe are thinking this because of this, this, and this, okay? That sounds much different than the master therapist who says, you know, what I heard you say was X, Y, and Z. Did I hear that correctly? And, you know, hopefully they say yes and then go. So for me, the emotions that would create are A, B, and C. Tell me about what it creates for you. What is it that you experience? And always give them permission to call you out and say you're wrong. Um, and again, this is just another skill that isn't natural for us to do. Um, it's not natural for us to say, hey, if I'm wrong, tell me and then give someone the space to actually do that. And those are all skills that need to be learned. Okay. All right. So that's where we'll finish up for today. Um, is there any questions on today's, what we went through? It was kind of a quick review. Um, Are we going to have any readings on this, uh, on the two models, the general model and their center focused? Yes, yes. Yeah, I'll get those posted uh, uh, by the end of this week. Okay, thank you. Okay. All right, everyone. So we've kind of gone over the generals um, and, and some ideas of how it applies to practice. So next week, what we're going to do is we're going to narrow it down some more, um, starting with, the, you know, the listening and attending skills, starting with, the, uh, you know, you as the facilitator. Um, and we're really going to start working on these skills so that we can get into now let's apply them to different treatment uh, modalities. So we're over time. That's where we'll end today. Thank you for uh, joining today. Um, and I do truly look forward to seeing you all on Monday, virtually at least. Thank you. Have a good week. You too. Thank you very much.